and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to look at what can be done to treat hypermobility and how to improve our lives given our circumstances. On today's episode, we have returning guest, Dr. Abby McElroy, who I think has so far the most listened to episode of all time with her episode that was primarily about hypermobility in animals. Today, she returns with her principal investigator, Dr. Heather Gray Edwards, to discuss the exciting new research they've been working on. Dr. Gray Edwards is an assistant professor of radiology at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School and is a member of the Jorge Gene Therapy Center. Much of her research has been focused on evaluating therapeutic interventions in testing novel adeno-associated viral vectors and delivery routes using both biochemical and molecular biology techniques as well as in vitro evaluation like neurological examinations, MRIs, and electrodiagnosis diagnostics of GM1 and GM2 gangliosidosis cats. Dr. McElroy is a doctoral student who re- previously received her Doctor of Veterinary Medicine degree from Tufts University in 2017. She further obtained a master's degree from Michigan State University in 2018 which focuses on the characterization of neurological abnormalities in an equine model of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. From 2018 to 2021, Dr. McElroy was a postdoctoral research associate in the Department of Neurosurgery at Rhode Island Hospital and the Medical School of Brown University, where she studied tethered cord syndrome and myodural bridge dysfunction in patients with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. In her current position at the Gray Edwards Laboratory at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School, she focuses on the development of gene therapy for EDS and multisystemic smooth mu- muscle dysfunction syndrome related to the AC2A2 mutation. Abby also has two cats and two dogs, and one of her cats has EDS and is a bit of a social media star in his own right. Uh, his name is Reed, and you can follow him at Reed underscore EDS on Instagram. Um, and we'll include the link to uh, Reed's page with the episode description, as well as links to the Gray Edwards Lab and some of the research that they're working on. Uh, Dr. Gray Edwards and Dr. McElroy, hello. Thanks for joining us again, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. So could you please give our listeners an overview of the kind of genetic research that you're working on right now regarding Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and what it may mean for the future? So, um... The, my research lab, like this is Heather, my research lab focuses on uh, rare genetic diseases, uh, most commonly uh, neurological, um, of children. We have uh, developed uh, AAV, or adeno-associated viral mediated gene therapies, um, for two rare neurological diseases in children. One of them is known as uh, Tay-Sachs disease, and the other one is known as GM1 gangliosidosis. Um, In these studies, we've used various animal models to uh, bring forth gene therapy to patients, which are both in clinical trials right now with early promising results. So um, with this experience, we have taken on several other genetic diseases in the lab uh, to try to develop AAV therapeutics. So in order to develop an AAV or viral-based therapeutic, it has to meet two clear criteria. One, you have to have a genetic disorder, a clean genetic link between the disease that the phenotype that you're trying to treat, and this kind of has to be established in advance, and that that gene really needs to be a relatively small gene in order to fit inside of the AAV virus. Um, 
with regard to EDS, um, Abby uh, joined my lab recently, and as her resume says, she's very dedicated to uh, developing a therapeutic for um, EDS. And so we discussed the different 13 different forms of EDS and settled on one of them that we believed would be the most um, likely to have success with AAV media gene therapy as her project for which she can further take on EDS after she finishes her time in my lab. And that is a form of dermatospraxis known as Adam TS2 deficiency, which I will let her talk more about. Yeah, so dermatospraxis EDS, as Heather said, um, is caused by a gene called Adam TS2, so it's autosomal recessive. Um, in addition to being found very uncommonly in humans, it is seen actually with um, a fair degree of frequency in veterinary patients. So we see it in dogs, cats, sheep, and cattle. And it was actually first discovered in cattle. So we found it, uh, I believe, in the 1960s initially in cattle. And then it was not discovered until the 1990s in humans. Um, but why dermatospraxis is a fairly easy target to start with is because, um, as Heather said, it's, it's a very small gene that's involved, so it's easy to fit in a viral vector. Um, it causes a loss of function of a secreted protein, so we're trying to add back in that lost function. And then um, there's two other things that make it a good target. One is that um, the function of Adam TS2 is extracellular, so we don't have to worry about getting that virus into the cells. Um, and then also it's expressed globally throughout the body. Um, so that makes it a little bit of an easier target. Um, and then also the procollagen that's abnormal in Adam TS2 has no known function. So um, basically making it overexpressed in the body and hopefully cleaving that abnormal portion of the procollagen to make it a tropocollagen, which is the mature form that you ultimately need to form collagen fibrils. Um, shouldn't have any deleterious effect if we sort of overexpress it throughout the body. So that's why we wanted to start with, with that form of EDS, even though um, it is quite an uncommon form. We hope that it will be a good starting point for developing a gene therapy program. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, and, you know, admittedly, um, these lesser prevalent um, forms of EDS are, you know, something I don't know nearly as much about, but it's so interesting to learn about these differences um, and explore. And, you know, hopefully that will lead to um, other insights that, you know, may be applicable with other forms of EDS. Um, you mentioned that there was this extracellular um, component uh, uh, that you're focusing on and that that's um, easier to target because you don't need to go inside the cell itself. Mm -hmm. um, is there, so is that specifically unique to just DEDS or does that, is that possibly a, an issue with other form of EDS too, or is, or is that not been determined yet? Um, I believe it's a function of a few other types. At least tenacin X is extracellular. That involves the um, function of the extracellular matrix and basically the stabilization of collagen fibrils. Um, I think potentially arthrochalasia is extracellular, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Um, no worries. But dermatospraxis, yeah, is, is primarily extracellular. So basically what happens is that immature form of collagen um, is produced within the cell. 
uh, it leaves the cell and it has these little ends on it. Um, and those ends have to be cleaved off of what's called the procollagen chain to go on to form tropocollagen, which um, is then incorporated into the collagen fibrils that give strength to our tendons, ligaments, bone. Um, and what happens in dermatosporaxis EDS is one end of that chain, so one of those little loose ends, can't be cleaved off. So it has this kind of tag on the end. Um, so when those immature procollagens go on to be incorporated into collagen fibrils, um, they have kind of an abnormal shape and aren't able to provide the correct amount of tensile strength to the collagen fibrils. Interesting. And you mentioned um, I, when um, DEDS was discovered in cattle initially, was that before it was discovered in humans? Do you know, was it first discovered in cattle or humans then cattle? Yeah, it was first discovered in cattle. Um, and then it was later discovered in humans. It, it wasn't discovered in humans until the early 90s. Wow. that's And did you say it was initially discovered in the 60s in cattle? Yeah, I believe late 60s, early 70s is when it was first described in cattle. Um, yeah. And then dogs and cats, you know, it was, I think, around that time it started being discovered. I'm not sure that they really quite understood what subtype it was, but mm -hmm. I think that the biochemical basis was starting to be unraveled um, in several animal species around that time. But yeah, it was not first described in human patients until quite late. That's fascinating. Um, and that just makes me wonder, have there been any studies on the prevalence of DEDS throughout animal populations like cattle or other animals? No, we don't know the prevalence in animals. Um, it seems to be much more prevalent in animals than in humans. Um, it's only been described so far in 15 human patients. That said, um, it shares, you know, many similarities with some other types of EDS, including severe forms of classical EDS. So it's definitely possible that it's just very underdiagnosed. And that's my experience as well with other genetic diseases is that um, they just get, it gets classified as, as something else um, before, mm -hmm. you know, there's a therapeutic. And then when there's a therapeutic involved for a particular disease, then, then things tend to kind of straighten themselves all out on the diagnosis side of things. My understanding in humans, and Abby, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a, a founder Ashkenazi Jewish mutation. Um, I work on several other Ashkenazi Jewish mutations, including Tay-Sachs disease. And I will say that even when the Ashkenazi Jewish mutations are kind of um, screened for, they crop up in people who don't realize that they have Ashkenazi Jewish descent. So I would expect that this would be able to be picked up on a lot of the routine uh, trios or genetic testing that's, that's going on with patients with various diseases. Yeah, that's correct. And I think with the advent of more readily available genetic testing, it should be picked up on more and more. Um, and like I said, you know, it, it's, I think, probably often mistaken for severe classical EDS, but other common rollouts are cutis laxa, which is a disorder that causes severe redundancy of the skin. And then also, um, interestingly, um, achondroplasia dwarfism is often um, one of the rollouts just because these mm -hmm. children um, have severe abnormalities in their growth. So I think there's probably been a lot of misidentification of the disorder over the years. And I think that also these kids don't always have joint, uh, extra joint mobility, even right. though that it is there, it's often mild and, and some of the other like skin phenotypes that should be really obvious or, or not obvious early on. So maybe that plays a role. Right. 
Interesting. Yeah. I So I noticed that generalized joint hypermobility is a minor criteria for the diagnosis of DEDS. Is this actually because the hypermobility is not as prevalent in DEDS or more so because some of the other major diagnostic criteria are more reliable with respect to diagnosis given, for example, you know, we've talked previously on this show about the challenges associated with diagnosing generalized joint hypermobility, like, for example, how surgery can tighten a joint um, or joints can become, you know, tightened due to muscle spasms or, or throughout the aging process. And so I'm curious about the link to hypermobility with this um, more rare form of EDS. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's hard to say how prevalent it is, just given how few humans it's been described in. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, I think part of the problem with the joint hypermobility is the few, um, the few reports of kids who have had it and who have kind of survived early childhood. um, It seems like their joint hypermobility has gotten significantly worse with age. Um, So by the teenage years, they've kind of caught up to the other forms of EDS, where they're kind of scoring in the six to nine range on the Byton score, which is a little more reasonable when you're comparing it with the other subtypes of EDS. Um, Mm -hmm. But in early childhood, they're not necessarily that flexible. Hmm. So it may just be that we don't want to make it a major criteria because we could miss some of the early childhood cases. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, yeah, the the major criteria with dermatospraxis EDS are, are quite striking. I mean, the skin fragility and the skin redundancy are so severe. Um, some of these kids are born with, you know, congenital skull fractures, severe umbilical hernias, things like that, that um, maybe stand out a little bit more than the early childhood joint hypermobility. Interesting. And so I'm curious, are there similar diagnostic criteria for diagnosing animals or are those completely separate diagnostic criteria? And part of the reason I'm curious is because it seems like we know the gene for DEDS. So like, for example, I'm wondering why the diagnosis isn't made just solely on the presence of the genetic test, or if it's like the criteria are used. And then once you meet the criteria, then you're able to get the test. Is that how it works? That's it. Yeah, it's it's, the criteria is more as a screening for who should be tested. Um, In animals, we don't really have criteria to differentiate the types of EDS, um, mostly because we don't really use the the Byton score on them. So um, our main criteria that we use across all types of EDS is something called the skin extensibility index. Um, So that's just a a math equation where the final value for normal um, is different between species. We primarily use it in small animals, but it just measures how stretchy the skin is. Um, But the other thing that we use in animals as well as people is um, electron microscopy. So that is something that does differentiate dermatospraxis EDS from other types of EDS. So on electron microscopy, the collagen looks quite distinct. Um, So it's really the one type of EDS that you can make a fairly definitive diagnosis just based on electron microscopy alone. And that's because those little tags on the end of the procollagen chains cause such a um, unique appearance on electron microscopy. So they form something called hieroglyphic collagen fibrils. Um, so it, it's a really unique appearance compared to just kind of the normal um, flower-like collagen that we see with other types of EDS. That's really interesting. And so was DEDS the first of the EDS types that was um, identified in animals, or do you know if there are other types that were found before that? 
I believe it was the first type where we knew kind of the molecular basis. Um, but I, I think there may have been a couple case reports in small animals before that where we just didn't really know the type. Interesting. And so I, I was interested when you talked about how skin, the skin hyperextensibility is um, really used to determine if animals, especially small animals, it sounds like, um, have EDS or should be suspected to have EDS. Um, and I'm curious of just how that kind of interacts with the diagnostic criteria. Like, for example, in um, uh, hypermobile EDS, the um, and I know this is like sort of a little bit outside of the wheelhouse, but I'm sort of just curious about how this um, differs. So for the, in the diagnostic criteria for um, hypermobile EDS in humans, um, there are sort of some references to the, you know, skin issues. Um, but this, the skin extensibility and like quantifying it in the way you're describing from the way I understand the diagnostic criteria is not a part of how we diagnose humans. So do you, do you know why that hasn't made its way into, you know, the diagnostic criteria for humans? Like, it seems like if it's a easily quantifiable thing in animals, it seems like a, I don't know, a good starting point or, or something that should be sort of considered when it comes to humans, given the challenges, like I said, associated with tracking joint hypermobility over time, because they can be influenced by other things as well. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the way that we do it may not really work for humans. So basically what we do is we pull up the skin along the back um, until we elicit some discomfort and we measure from the top of the spine to the top of that skin fold. And then we divide it by a measurement um, from the base of the skull to the base of the tail and multiply by a hundred. Um, and basically over 14.5% is abnormal in dogs and over 19% is abnormal in cats. Um, just given like the range of different body types in humans that may not be as applicable, but um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not really an expert on on the terminologic issues in humans. Yeah, no, and so sorry to kind of ask you a question outside of your expertise. I was just curious no, that's okay. because it seems like it seems like such an interesting, you know, the 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 healthcare system and you know research in general for animals and humans, um, you know, seems to really gravitate towards those kind of metrics that are you know easily quantifiable, and I think that's been a challenge with you know, human diagnoses, because like you said, like the bite and scale, it sounds like doesn't really work that great for animals. Um, I wonder how, how well it works for humans, too. And so I'm kind of just trying to think, like, are there ways we can apply what we've learned, you know, in the animal context, you know? To- yeah, and I mean, we see a little bit less hypermobility in animals with EDS. I mean, it, it's present, but not in all cases. And it's a little hard because some species are just inherently less flexible than others. So mm-hmm. it would be something that would have to be very species specific if someone were to develop it. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's certainly possible that it could be developed. Someone would just really have to put the time into measuring hypermobility in a lot of normal um, or healthy animals that don't have EDS first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and it seems like maybe it's an interesting thing to study, you know, in the future for humans too, to see if there are, you know, skin extensibility, like pulling the skin on the arm or, you know, a place that's mm-hmm. less painful and more accessible. But um, yeah, very interesting. Um, so this is a question for both of you. Um, where do you see the future research developing with respect to 
Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and other genetic diseases, and how are animal models a part of that research and development? Okay, I will start. So um, I will say that that as far as gene therapy goes, I would say that the uh, field of gene therapy for ADS starts and stops with Dr. McElroy. Um, she convinced me to do to take this project on. Um, it's definitely her baby. Um, there does seem to be very common in animals, as she mentioned before, and I'll let her um, talk about that because she is definitely the expert, not me in that regard. But one thing I do really love about, about gene therapy is that is the opportunity to test therapeutics in large animals prior towards human translation. And so I do believe that these animals will pave the way to treating human patients with this disease. So that is the, the one upside to the, a lot of these animals suffering from this condition. And with that, I'll leave it to Abby. Well, yeah, and I think along with what Heather said, you know, kind of the great thing or not so great thing, depending on how you look at it, is with EDS, um, we don't have to go out and create models of this disorder. Like, they're already here. We already have these animals kind of at our disposal to work with. Um, and, you know, if we make a gene therapy, it could be really beneficial both to them and to humans, which is something that's really great. Um but yeah, I mean, like we said earlier, our plan is to start with dermatosporaxis EDS, and our plan is, um, if that's successful, to move from there to kyphoscoliotic EDS, which is a little bit of a harder target. It's intracellular, but um, I think still doable, and then hopefully move from there to, to some of the really tough ones. Um, so the collagen genes themselves are, are huge genes, so that'll be a little bit of a more difficult target. Um, but obviously... There are a lot of patients out there with hypermobile EDS, and we definitely understand that. But, you know, in order to make any headway there, we would really have to know the, the genetic basis. But I know that the Norris lab is doing a lot of work on that. And yeah. I would say for those bigger genes, those ones that are going to be really challenging, those will very likely end up having to be genome editing strategies um, to treat those. They'll be a little bit different than, than what this is, is what we have planned here. Not Definitely not do, uh, definitely doable. And it, gene um, editing strategies are in human clinical trials already and proving to be quite promising. So, but it just will require a little bit different technology. Very interesting. And um, so it sounds like DEDS is, um, I guess, relatively common in animals. Is it fair to say that the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes in general are, are common? It sounds like mo some groups of animals a lot more so than others um, but I, I guess, I, I, I guess it sounds like there haven't been prevalent studies, but I guess, is it fair to say of the EDS family of syndromes that they're relatively common in the animals we talked about, cats, dogs, horses? Yeah, so I, they're relatively common. We know more about the prevalence of these disorders in horses than in any other species, just because kind of the nature of the horse industry, but um, yes, yeah, so animals get uh, variants associated with classical EDS, um, tenacin X EDS, um, dermatosporaxis, and kyphoscoliotic EDS, as well as a mutation in a gene called uh, PPIB, which is um, associated with a lethal form of osteogenesis imperfecta in humans, but it causes a phenotype that's similar to EDS in horses. Interesting. And so in the, in the human context, um, of the 13, or maybe there was a recent discovery. Are we up to 14? I, I can never keep track. Yeah. There was a recent one that was uh, the 14th, but I believe it's only been described in four people. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So again, we're talking like in the yeah, human observations, some of these incredibly rare. Um, but so there, and obviously in the human community, there's um, the vast majority of the people with a diagnosis of EDS are in that hypermobile EDS bucket for which there's no gene. Um, how do both of you, you know, see the future of kind of the rest of EDS that we don't have a gene for? Do you think there's you know, do you think it's a possibility there's 20 subtypes within the remaining? Do you think, you know, it's could be even more than that? I mean, given the sort of very small prevalence of some of these um, findings of very rare conditions, I guess it kind of begs the question for me, is it, are they really rare or have we just started looking for these things? Do you mean within the hypermobile EDS? Are there is there more than one gene? Yeah. So for the remain, well, I guess yeah. I guess it's a little bit of a convoluted question. So for the, I'm thinking of like the EDS umbrella and how we know the gene for the 13 or 14 uh, rare types. Um, and you know, I guess classical and vascular aren't nearly as rare as some of the others. There's sort of the rare and then the ultra rare. I don't know if there's a specific scientific term for those ones that are like four people. Um, but for the rest of the people with an EDS diagnosis, but without a gene, um, and, and same thing with animals. I mean, do you see, do you see your work leading to this discovery of more subtypes or, you know, is that a piece of this or is that kind of outside the realm of, um, is it too early to speculate about what the rest of the EDS population that doesn't have diagnoses, both for animals and humans? No, I mean, our work's focused on treatment of types that we're already aware of. Um, you know, it's always possible that an animal brought to us will end up having a mutation that wasn't previously described, but um, it likely won't be relevant to the hypermobile EDS community. Um, in terms of hypermobile EDS, you know, I think your guess is as good as mine. I think a lot of smart people have been looking for a number of years for the gene. Um, so... We'll have to see what the Norris lab comes up with. I'm really excited to see their results, but I think it's unlikely that there'll be one gene that encompasses the whole patient population of hypermobile EDS. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, there's been some interesting research in the past few years about genes that are more involved with mast cell dysfunction and mast cell regulation and how that, um, how that relates to hypermobility and POTS. Um, so it could be that, you know, it's not really a connective tissue specific gene, but I think we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, absolutely. Very, it's very interesting. And I, it, it's, this kind of leads me into my next question here. And it's interesting to think about the ways in which hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos is similar to the other types of Ehlers-Danlos, but also appears to have these unique features like the, the mast cell component. And, you know, I've seen the theory floated out there that, hypermobile EDS has an autoimmune component that's responsible, or there may be, you know, something else that's causing the lax connective tissue that's not purely genetic. Um, and, and so uh, to that end, when I was reading up on dermatospraxis EDS, I noticed that it's inherited in an autosomal recessive manner in contrast to hypermobile EDS, which appears to be inherited in an autosomal dominant matter. Is there a reason or possible hypothesis as to why these different types of EDS are inherited in different ways? I can't speak to the EDS, but I can um, maybe, um, you know, with just general respect to d dominant versus recessive uh, disorders, 
um, recessive disorders are caused by what's considered to be a loss of function. So you have something that is there that has a job to do and it can no longer do its job and then you see a disease. Dominant disorders tend to be caused by things that have what's called a gain of function where it normally does one thing and then it develops the ability to do something new that is bad. And that could be just due to accumulation or it could be due to an abnormal function. Um, that's just in general, the differences between recessive and dominant diseases. Um, and then you can read into that whatever you want to regarding the EDS um, undiagnosed diseases. I, I, I really, I wish I had better better information for you for that, but it does seem that that that, that class of diseases is a little bit of a black box at this moment. No, thank you for clarifying that. That's actually really helpful and incredibly interesting. So thanks. And just to add a comment about the mast cell thing. I mean, you know, obviously patients with hypermobile EDS tend to have a lot of mast cell issues, but I don't think it's specific to just hypermobile EDS. We certainly see um, increased numbers of mast cells and mast cell dysfunction in the cats with um, like types of EDS that are associated with humans that have classical EDS-like mutations. Um, but, you know, I, I know that Dr. Maitland has mentioned before that the contents of mast cells are often referred to as the meat tenderizers of the body. Um, so mm -hmm. it's sort of a chicken or the egg situation, right? So are um, patients getting mutations in genes associated with mast cell dysfunction and that's damaging the collagen or um, is damaged collagen somehow leading the mast cells to act badly and then lead to more damage? And I think that's just something that we don't really know at this point. That's fascinating. And I actually hadn't heard that before about the meat tenderizers. Um, that's certainly a very visceral image. Is that because they, like those chemicals break down the muscle and connective tissue um, fibers? Is I guess, is that the context or? I mean, I think that they're just pretty toxic to connective tissue in general. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a mass cell biologist, right, right. but I believe that the, uh, the contents of them are just pretty, um, pretty toxic to collagen. Um, Highly inflammatory. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That it puts a an interesting visceral image, and I I, I certainly relate to the notion of feeling like I'm I'm in a meat tenderizer sometimes with some of these issues. But it's, so it's like it's very helpful to have these images that I think are easier to communicate to people because. Um, these conditions can look very perplexing to, um, you know, lay people and physicians alike. So very interesting observation. Um, what for this one's for both of you too, what do you think are the biggest challenges to getting research done? Like the kind of research you both are doing, um, and research on, you know, rare conditions and genetic conditions in general, like Ehlers-Danlos. Oh, I think, you know, with any rare genetic disorder, um, lack of funding, lack of general awareness, particularly when you get into the rare types of EDS. I mean, we're talking about such a small number of humans that have been affected by it. Um, it it's a little harder to get research funding. Um, so I think those are kind of the big challenges. I don't know if Heather has anything she wants to add. Finding the genetic causes is the first step. So, you know, with regard to some, some of the hypermobile phenotypes, I think that that will be very helpful to get people towards doing that for sure. I think that's the only thing I can add. Yeah, definitely. And um, I, that was all so fascinating. 
Are, are there any parting thoughts that you'd like to um, leave our audience with or anything that you think they should know about the kinds of research you're doing, the kind of new frontiers of, you know, investigating genetic um, both conditions and, you know, potential treatments for them? Um, I think I want to caution patients a little bit that this isn't necessarily um, going to be something that's going to be life-changing, especially for older patients. We just don't know um, what the effect is going to be of a gene therapy on a, a adult or teenage age EDS patient. Um, it may be that to make any kind of headway, we're going to have to treat people at birth um, just because, you know, your collagen is everywhere. Um, and obviously it's a hard target to um, really make a huge change globally with collagen. So I just want, um, I want to be realistic about, um, you know, some of the more common types of EDS. This may not be kind of a cure-all for hypermobile EDS, classical EDS, those kinds of things, but we really don't know at this point. So that's why we're starting off and why we're so excited about it is it, it may be much more effective than we even expect it to be. Um, but I just, I don't want people to get their hopes up too much. Such an important message. Yes. Thank you for tempering expectations. I think that's an important reminder that as exciting as these discoveries are, you know, the scientific process does take time, um, a lot of time. And, um, you know, just because these discoveries are going on, you know, who knows how long, if and when that translates. And like you said, to what populations, adult versus children, I think that's such an important point to make. Um, I guess, personally, I feel like any kind of discoveries, though, like this, do raise awareness about EDS, you know, slowly, just kind of even just getting that term out there more and getting people aware of it. So even if it's not leading to direct treatments, which, you know, is a hope for a lot of people, um, you know, hopefully that increased awareness and the knowledge gained for it, you know, will be useful in a lot of contexts beyond just treatments or even just finding genes. Definitely. Uh, Dr. Gray Edwards, I guess any parting thoughts, anything um, you'd like our audience to be aware of? Well, I think that 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 whole thing with uh, earlier treatment holds true for pretty much every gene therapy strategy. What we're seeing in the field right now is that the earlier interventions tend to be those that are the most efficacious. So this isn't just limited to EDS. And that um, while this does seem to be rather limited to one of the more rare forms of EDS, that this is a good starting point for Abby to continue to, to work on these types of diseases. Um, and so I really look forward to seeing where she ends up going with, with this in the field. Absolutely. Me too. Um, thank you both so much for your time today. I've learned so much. I know our, our listeners will as well. And it's just incredibly exciting, the work that you're doing. And um, kudos to both of you for identifying these issues and working so hard on them. It's, it's endlessly fascinating. And I, I think, you know, hopefully it's going to be a benefit to the EDS community to have this research out there, even if it's just for increased awareness and, you know, hopefully that flows to increased funds or, um, you know, people um, advocating for more grants, you know, to be following this kind of research. And um, yeah. So thank you both for contributing to, um, the knowledge that we have about 
our conditions. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Well, that's all for this episode of Hypermobility Happy Hour. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, As always, if you have any questions, suggestions, or comments for future episodes, please feel free to email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. Thanks, and see you next time. Bye.